You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music a producer rapper and label head lp has seen everything in the music business and lived to tell about it i'm greg cott from the chicago tribune and i'm jim dirigatis from wbez and columbia college hip-hop innovator lp joins us in the studio this week for a lively interview and a performance Then Greg and I review the latest album from Bob Dylan. That's all this week on Sound Opinions. I found your hairband on my bedroom floor The only evidence that you've been there before And I don't get waves of missing you anymore They're more like tsunami tides in my eyes Never getting dry, so I get high Smoke away the days, never sleep with the light on Weeks pass in the blink of an eye And I'm still drunk at the end of the night I don't drink like everybody else I do but to forget things about myself Greg, that is a little bit of the British artist Ed Sheeran who is number one in terms of illegal downloads in the U.K., according to a uh, new music monitoring service across the ocean, Music Metric. This is an interesting BBC story about this new service, which has done the most extensive study of the artists who are being illegally downloaded yet conducted. And they've broken it down by country. So as I said, in the U.K., more people are file sharing or illegally downloading Ed Sheeran than any other artist. In Canada, it's Kanye West on top. In Poland and in Belgium, it's Gautier. And you want to take a guess about who's number one in the U.S.? Uh, let me see. Skrillex. No, it is Drake, which I think is pretty interesting. He's a pretty good artist. We've reviewed him on Sound Opinions. Now, the study right now is very anglophilic. There is no breakdown for different parts of the United States, which I'd be fascinated to see. But there is an interesting look at just the weird pockets of music people embrace. In the Scottish border towns, the number one most illegally downloaded artist is the Smiths. Now, that kind of makes sense, you know, a dark, gray, rainy place, right? In the Oxfordshire village of Kidlington, it's Justin Bieber. But you want to know who is number one in terms of their music being downloaded on the Isle of Wight? Louis Armstrong. At night, I cover my ears and tears. The man downstairs must have drank too many beers. But one day you'll pay. That's a song called Last Good Sleep for the 1990s hip-hop group Company Flow. One of the founders of that group, LP, is our guest this week on Sound Opinions. Now, LP was born Jamie Moline from Brooklyn, New York. And New York, obviously, was the center of hip-hop for the 80s and 90s and hugely influenced LP's music and life. He went on to form Company Flow, major group, as we said, put out a bunch of solo albums after that, produced records for other artists, and eventually even created his own label, Def Jux, later on known as Definitive Jux. That label defined the sound of independent hip-hop for much of the next decade. This year, even by LP standards, though, Greg, has been an especially busy one. 
He produced that great Killer Mike record. We reviewed it on the show, Rap Music. He's gone on tour, and he has his own album out, Cancer for Cure, which is one of our favorites so far of the year. When he joined us in the studio, we started by asking him about the song we came in with from Company Flow, Last Good Sleep, and how its avant-garde combination of beats and lyrics altered the direction of his career. I look back at that song as a turning point in what I did as a writer. Up until that point, we were only concerned with saying the coolest, funniest, and harshest thing that we could. And that was, I guess, the first song that I ever did that that just actually opened up and told people about my life at all. And it was powerful. It was The reaction to it was powerful, and that affected the way that I went forward doing music um, with my solo stuff. Well, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, I think that's probably one of the hardest things to, you know, that bridge to cross in hip-hop because it's about, it's, it's about being tough and about being mm. your own man. And there was so much of that, I can't allow any vulnerability in. What made you go there? I was raised by women. I was raised only by women. I, I witnessed them and, you know, of course, because I was in, in the surroundings, I, it was... I went through it as well, but there was a lot of really damaging and, and tough stuff that happened when I was a kid. And um, I, it wasn't really something that I, it wasn't a choice. It was a song that had to come out of me. It was probably the most important song the, or the first song that ever had to come out of me that, that was an exorcism of something that needed to be expelled from myself in order for myself to move forward and, and grow. And that, and, and that was maybe one of the first times where I realized that this thing that I had stumbled onto as in terms of being a part of in a career was an art form and was something that an art form that could affect me, you know, as I wrote these songs. And um, so it wasn't really contrived in any way. It was just the fact that my human experience demanded it. And, and that's what happened. And the, the tools that I was using um, were, were this music. So that's what came out. And it was scary to do. And it was, it, I had never opened up like that. And, and, wasn't sure I wanted to. wasn't sure I wanted to let people in on my personal experience. And, um, and I didn't necessarily think at the time that anyone could really relate to my story, you know, because it was so specific. And what I realized was it was actually the opposite. That was actually the, the song that people related to if they, even if they didn't know who we were or didn't listen to the record or like the record. That was the one that people would come up to me with tears in their eyes. Mm. And, and it was amazing to me. And it made me realize that, in fact, that perception that I had, that, that going inward and telling a very personal perspective was, I assumed it would be alienating, but it was different. It was the opposite of that because the realization was that we're not all unique. We, we all can connect on certain things like pain and fear and joy and uh, yearning and confusion and... So it was, that's what made me start to change the way that I wrote and change the things that I wrote about. Jamie, when you open up like that, (laughs) you run the dreaded risk of backpacker, granola eater, right? Alternative hip hop, all right? And you're instantly dismissed no matter how creative the music and lyrics are. Mm. In the mid-90s, it was a little less intense, but but quickly calcified. How did you deal with, with that in the beginning? Well, I mean, look, the fact of the matter is is that I'm a little bit more complicated than any of those labels, and people know that. I've been around. I'm just like a kid from Brooklyn writing, you know, and I take that perspective. And, you know, my, my music isn't some searing, personal, you know, inward journey every moment. It's just that I, I won't restrict myself. 
that's always been the difference and that's the old that's that's the way that I've always looked at it you know and never cared about what anyone's opinion was of that because quite frankly your relationship between you and and the art that you're doing is is an important one everything else comes second in the way that people deal with it and also I just think that you know truth is never corny yeah some of the reactions that you get from um sort of contrived you know mm. um and and one-sided and not particularly insightful pseudo introspective music i mean that can be the worst music ever made yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah. it deserves a little bit of flagellation <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. before we get too far away from company flow in those early days in brooklyn what really first blew your mind in hip-hop that you heard where you heard that kind of intensity and, and honesty and uh, do you remember listening to this music for the first time yeah of course i mean but i grew up in in moved to Brooklyn when I was six and in my neighborhood and, and even going to school on the trains. I mean, this was in the era of graffiti on the trains and this was an era of boom boxes in the street. I grew, you know, so the music and the, and the art was all around me and it just made sense to me as a New Yorker. It was just something I didn't question. This was what was happening now. This was my city. This was the music of it. And to me seeing like run DMC, they were like New York superheroes. Yeah. You know, they were these giant men just styled out, just inc- tough. You, you know, you just assume they were tough. Like, there was just something so badass about these guys that that, that was one of the first things that drew me in. It was really Run DMC. Two years ago, a friend of mine asked me to say some MC rhyme. So I said this rhyme I'm about to say. The rhyme was deaf, but then it went this way. Took a test to become an MC. And Orange Cliff became amazed at me. So Larry put me inside. You know, Jim was alluding to this earlier, Jamie, but the whole idea of indie hip-hop and, you know, being part of this alternative scene, I, I guess the part of that was not by choice. You kind of found yourself there. You know, it would have been great to get signed mm. to Def Jam or something like that, maybe, or Sony. No, man, actually, I turned down a few major label deals um, before I started we we turned down major label deals and which is not to say I, you know i would do that now but at the time it was we were pretty serious and 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 pretty direct about wanting to do it independently actually when we first came out and that's ultimately because um we just wanted to control i don't think we had what it took to deal with doing anything else you know i think in in some senses we were just already exhausted even for the idea of going to a bigger system but we also wanted to control it we didn't want to answer to anybody we didn't want to um we just wanted to put our music out and so we 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 pressed up in like 1996 we pressed up some vinyl ourselves and that was what became ultimately Funk crusher plus um off of that vinyl pressing which we did probably about i don't know 20 30,000 on our own just out of our bags basically mm. and we we couldn't figure out why we would ever do anything else we were like this is amazing mm-hmm. the day that, that that test pressing comes in the mail for the first time yeah. right yeah. i mean nothing's better than that nothing's better than that except getting a phone call from the distributor and they're saying you just sold 10,000 of those <laughs> you know so that's a little better um, yeah. and so 
we ended up going to raucous records off of that and extending that ep into but you know the idea was always to be independent because at the time it seemed like the most rational response to what we perceived the industry being but now it's different there's a lot of there are a lot of different paths to take and people are getting famous in completely new ways um through music that that i don't think anyone could have predicted you know you've been having some interesting things to say about that and we'll talk more about that later but how about a song we got the band here yeah. Tell us what you're going to play. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What are that we? Would uh, be great. Four dollar bill. Okay, yeah, cool. Still in Brooklyn, lullabies chime crooked for the Harold and the Shookin. Back to Dosley, back to hold the hide closely for the sparrows and the butchers. See the blood moon, hunter's moon, hear the howling for the habit and the hammer and the cowering. And the magic with the haunted and the doubting. There are ghosts here, there's a presence, there's a power. It's the tightrope of a tank with the piranhas for the frazzled, it's a moment, it's a promise. To be broke down, to be low down, to be honest. Another showdown with the woozy and the conscious. For the Aggie with the baggie with the bottle. With a smile, with a sip, with a swallow. Don't you ever try to say that you're not one of us, my love. We are to touch, we are entrusted by the same tone. I'm still living with a four dollar pick. And that's a, a lot of trouble for a little bit of wind. In a gasoline and sulfur and a sin. You cannot throw me in a briar patch, bitch. That is why I live. Zealots to the monarchs. What up, Brainiacs? 
compulsively acidic maniacs, repulsively predictable maniacs. To the liars, for the devil's night fires. Saying to you too, town crier. Top of the morning, morbid. Why today we're having gorgeous salutations, unimportant, hell I want inspired. Thought I'd drop on by and wish you all the luck desired. I wish you all the souls your little mouths can tuck inside. You'll always be that special part of me that loves to dine. I'm winning for it so 30 touches. Dizzy lust, I must imbibe. What a team we made, there's nothing we can't justify. I am the sun disgust and trusted with the undefined. And I can no longer contain what's under my disguise. I always had a cancer for the cure. And what the fuck am I? I'm still living like a four dollar thick. And I'm so out of trouble for a little bit of wind. That's $4 Vic from LP Live in the Sound Opinion Studios. After a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we'll continue our discussion with LP and hear more tracks from his new album, Cancer for Cure. Then, Jim and I are going to review the latest album from Bob Dylan. Yeah. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRigatis, and we'll be returning to our conversation with hip-hop artist LP, a.k.a. Jamie Moline. The track you're hearing right now is called Be Aware. It's from an instrumental album LP created with his first group, Company Flow. You know, he went on to produce groundbreaking records by uh, underground hip-hop stars like Cannibal Ox, and that production style sounded like nobody else's in the hip-hop universe. So I asked Jamie how making that instrumental track influenced the future of his production style. That was the first time that I had ever had to try and make a song without saying something on it. So I started to concentrate on the music more and, and melody and started to concentrate on you know bringing movements and change into the music and that uh, exercise carried over and, and you know and really went on for a couple of years I mean I didn't do the Cannibal Ox album for another couple of years after that record so that whole time I had just been sort of growing and developing as a producer and, and, and by the time I got to the Cannibal Ox record I think I had made like a legitimate step from when I had done um, Funk Crusher Plus and also working with those guys and, and, and wanting to create a world for them and uh, it was the first time I had uh, done an album for anybody else other than you know my projects and yeah so I don't know it just it just was this zone that I was in that, that to some degree informed the rest of my production career You know, one of the things that's always struck me is, is when you had the avant-garde movements in the classical world in the 50s and 60s, music concrete, right? The idea that anything can be music, a cement mixer, helicopters, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and then, but for like 35 years, we got the same 20 cheesy Casio keyboard sounds in hip-hop dominating, you know? Sure, sure. <laughs> that's one And thing. I probably collect those since. <laughs> um, but I, your, your productions always have sounded different. I think the trick to having the idea of avant-garde anything work is incorporating it into a listenable piece. For for it has to be surrounded by the familiar, the the the, the warm, you know. Um, and and that's why so many people get forgotten in history. I think is because all of these you know avant-garde people who thought that a cement mixer would make <laughs> a great song had an interesting idea, but it didn't make a great song. I think I always talk about how the noise and, you know, people have asked me over the years well, why my records are so noisy. And, and, and I'm just like, look, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I live in New York City. There's never a moment without noise. <laughs> like, yeah. Get up and go 
there's ambulances and and you know honk, you know honking horns and the occasional gunshot even if you want yeah. one and hey if you're lucky maybe you'll get to see something horrible too so it's well, like it's you always know. interesting how that's been reflected by different bands I mean the Velvet Underground Public Enemy yeah. your music they all sound exactly like New York they all sound completely different right and I think that that's something that you know, it's not it's not intentional you know I just yeah. think that we're sponges and we kind of soak up whatever you know if I lived by the beach I would be a much different artist I'm sure <laughs> well. You mentioned being a kid growing up in this environment and hearing those records for the first time. I can only imagine what it would have been like to be an eight-year-old kid hearing a Run DMC record for the first time. It sounds like you're getting, you know, beat up in an alley. I mean, it's like, you know, the violence of the drum sound. It it also sounds like you're triumphing, you know. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Like you're walking out of the alley with your wallet. And, and, you know, for for being a New Yorker, that was was more identifiable to me than any other type of music at the time. I would Mm -hmm. turn on TV and see hair metal bands, and I just couldn't understand it. It was just like, I don't know where these, these, this race of people come from. And so... I think that that was what it was. Is that that the music just immediately made sense, you know, more so than you know anything else that was supposed to be better. Mm-hmm. So you, you you come up in this golden era of, of, of hip hop, as people keep referring to it. I think with good reason. And and you're tilting at windmills a little bit yourself. You start you know at the at the dawn of the Napster era, you start your own label, and and put out a series of of really interesting records by people like Aesop Rock mm-hmm. and Mr. Liff, Cannibal Ox, your own stuff. At the time, was it just a case of the majors have lost the plot? They don't know how to do hip hop anymore. I'm going to give. I'm going to take a shot at it. No, not at all. It was never about. It was never anti-major label. You know, if you were motivating yourself, if your function is motivated by um, being against something, then I think that you're kind of doomed. I mean, for for me, it was never about that. It was simply just about self-empowerment. It was simply just about, I thought that it could be pulled off. And I thought that I could create an environment where we could make records that we wanted to make and, you know, sell them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it wasn't even much more complicated than that. It certainly wasn't a political statement, at least not in the sense that it's any different than uh, someone either choosing to work for a corporation or going to start in their own business. It's that simple. It obviously had you know, cachet. I mean, people associated that label with quality. And yet, even at the end, I guess that wasn't enough. What are the les- lessons learned after after running a label for 10 years like that? Uh, do, you want the re- <laughs> do you want the answer I won't tell you? Um, I don't know what the lesson learned is. All I can tell you is that for me, I know when it's time to move into something new. And that's usually when I'm not passionate about it or when I don't feel like I have the energy to put you know, into it. But, you know, I never, I never looked at it as a challenge, um, beyond it was tough. It was tough at times, but I mean, who am I to complain? I got to work for 10 years with amazing people and do something that we had just imagined, you know, um, and put records out that we were proud of. Well, you're running the label, you're producing other artists and you're putting out solo albums. We're building up to the third, which is what you're touring behind cancer for cure. I want to examine the mindset first. You know, so many people, uh, Jamie, still don't understand what a producer does, Mm. not only in hip-hop, but in rock and roll. Mm. And then what an artist does, how did you shift between the roles? And how would you describe the way you approach them? I just knew in my head that if I was going to be making other people's records that I couldn't make my record for them. And not, not even because it would be the wrong approach, but also because I just knew that I couldn't do it. <laughs> like, mm. you know, when I make my records, it's a very different uh, process and it's not something that you can really 
give to somebody else. I mean, unless they have years of their lives to waste. But, you know, I think I'm just trying to learn every day. I mean, every record that I do, I feel like I'm getting a little bit closer to understanding that that difference between a producer and an artist. And I'm not there yet. I do feel like I made progress. I feel like I understand that, you, you know, there's a balance between being sensitive to somebody's musical heritage that you're working with and where they come from and, and what their ideas are and also tasteful about how you insert your trademark or mm. whatever it is that you do, you know, because for me, I can't ultimately really get away from the fact that I have a sound to some degree. And, yeah. and as varied as my music can be, the trained ear will be able to pick up that it's my sound. Um, that's good. And it, but it's also presents a challenge, you know, so I have to figure out how to balance that. Like doing the Killer Mike record, I had to make sure that I wasn't upstaging Mike. Well, I mean, as Greg said at the start of this interview, an extraordinary couple of weeks there for you where Killer Mike came out and then your third solo album came out. What I would worry about, I'm I'm messing around. I come up with a cool riff on the Moog. You know, I got a beat. Okay. Now is it go to Mike? (laughs) Do I save it for me? (laughs) I'm never going to come up with anything this good again. Welcome to my personal hell, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you know, look, I have a really – I have a rule, and that basically is that you only give people the things you don't want to give them. Ah. <laughs> so you're selfless in this way. You have to be because mm. unless you uh, – it's lose-lose if you don't. Yeah. It, if you don't give them the beat, then you're producing a record that isn't your best music and it's getting out there. And if you're, if you're holding and, you're, and you're, you're scared to give away music, then it's almost like an admittance that you have a finite resource of creativity. Mm. And I never want to admit that. I always want to be deluded into thinking that I can, I can make another great piece of music, something better than I've done before. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis. We're here in the studio with LP. How about another song? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, what do we got? Check All right, I'm going to adjust my mic. Tell me who sent you here, what agency Who's paying for this time you're wasting Who signs when you submit receipts What do they have on you to bribe you What's the threat they held above that very pleasing face What do they want from me As for that shed of tools we spoke about Doubt that I'm the sharpest one Manuals I come with, clearly read I cut So you're not fooling anybody We all know that you couldn't be here out of love You must really think that I am dumb Well... I know a thing or two about a thing or two But one of them is the fact that men like me don't ever get no second chance Not for the kind of man who showed up at death's door and ding-dong dash so much You wore a hole out and a welcome mat You're good, the way you just smiled at me Crumble, the messer man will fall for that Just drift into the thrill of you Why don't you just admit the truth You were trained to withstand pain And that's the way that my crazy is not killing you Look at me I'm on to you. No more lies. I'm on to you. Then again, you might be out of your goddamn mind. I wouldn't want to be a part of any club that would have me. I wouldn't want to be a part of any club that would have me. 
The jig is up from LP and the group, Shannon Moore, Little Shalimar, Wilder Zobi. Uh, great stuff from the new LP record, Cancer for Cure. An album that has got a lot of thematic threads running through it, a unified sound. I think one of the things that you know we haven't touched on yet is the fact that you do make albums as albums, which is sort of anti the way yeah, <laughs> the culture yeah, is moving. Yeah. But obviously you feel that's that's the ultimate goal, is to, is to make that kind of a record. I mean... You know, if you're an artist, do you want to draw one frame or do you want to make a comic book? You know, I don't know. There's an art form to that that, that excites me. That always, I mean, that's why I fell in love with music. I fell in love with music by listening to albums front to back and being transported somewhere and um, letting my imagination create a world. And, uh, you know, the, the, the great albums in my life, the ones that I remember fondly, are the ones that made me feel that way. And so it's always been ingrained in me when I make a record. I'm really trying to make a, a long form piece of, you know, art. It's got to be a lonely battle at the same time. It's got to be like, you know, be. not bringing your friends in. You know, you're the worst, your own worst critic. Yeah. Nothing's yeah. ever good enough. Hence, five years between albums. Is that is that the reason? <laughs> <laughs> you're so right. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's an element of that for sure. And I've tried to negotiate around it. You know, mm-hmm. But uh, no, I can't really escape that. That, that. that definitely is a part of it. And, you know, I've always been pretty honest about that. And, you know, making a record for me has never been like this amazing, fun experience. It's been work, you know, and partially I feel like I'm just not that particularly talented. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I have to work really hard to sound good. But another part of it is just that I think that, um, you know, I just, um, this is what I do. These are the things that I'm going to leave. You know, I'll produce for other people and I'll do a bunch of other things. But these records are, this is my artistic statement. This is the thing that I've, that's my life has been directed towards since I was a kid and so I take my time, and I and I try and make them as good as I can at the time. This is war to extermination. Fight cell by cell through bodies and mind screens of the earth. Souls rotten from the orgasm drug. Flesh shuddering from the ovens. Prisoners of the earth, come out. Storm the studio. Album number three opens with a quote by William S. Burroughs from uh, Nova Express. Yeah. All right, that kind of sets the mood for the whole record which you've gone to great pains in, in many of your interviews saying yeah this is a dark record but a dark place 
but it's about fighting to stay alive in that place. Yeah. Talk Which, about that vision and where old Bill comes in. The yeah. whole thing. Because he sets the tone, I think, for the whole album. He does, and I just thought that it was a wonderful quote, and I just thought that I could reappropriate it um, and um, set the stage for the record to make it sound as though this were a, a good fight. You know, um, because a lot of times people come away from my records thinking, you know, at, at a cursory glance that it's just negativity. I understand that, but I, but that's not what I'm going for. Um, you know, in order for there to be like a transcendent um, sort of um, experience, you know, sometimes you have to talk about some hard things and sometimes it has to not feel, you know, like a celebration. And mm. um, but, you know, I think that I. I, I have those conversations with people, you know, and my point to them is that for me, the intention of the record is that there is that this is coming from a, a good place and a place of ultimately of hope, but not unbattered hope. And, and I think that these records for me are it's just you hearing, you know, my take and my as eloquent as, as I possibly can express it, my perspective on the human experience, but from my eyes and mm. from also the eyes of. Um, another part of me that I'm having to contain on these records, you know, um, this other voice in me that is terrified and, and angry and confused and um, doesn't really know how to get to point B from point A without wanting to scream. And I think also in keeping the broader theme here is of people rising up and, and, and defending themselves and speaking out. They may not mm. necessarily win the battle, but the struggle, as you said, is worth fighting. And I think in, in terms of just capturing the tenor of the times, whether it's the Occupy movement or people in the streets in Tunisia, you know, it, it's, it's that same vibe that seems to be going around in the world. So but when people say, you know, nobody's making protest records or political records, I go, well, this guy's been making them for a few years now, but it's not like you're on the summit handing out the political pronouncement. It's more yeah. a personalized thing. It seems to me like you're making the, the subversive political records. Uh, well, to me, the battle is not out there. I mean, it may be to some degree, but to me, the battle is, is internal, and that's what the record is about, you know? The idea of cancer for cure, the, the idea of us, you know, being the cancers for our own cure, of, of, of fighting ultimately internal battles. I always had in my head something that someone told me that said that ultimately we all have cancer to some degree, and our immune system is just constantly fighting it back. Hmm. And I believe that ultimately that these are the real truths of the struggles that you're seeing in the streets right now and the struggles you're seeing in the world. Nothing happens and nothing gets emanated from anywhere else from in, other than inside mankind internally. There are no external factors except weather. <laughs> and, you know, and, and that's the way I look at it. I choose to make my political statements from a personal perspective and because, you know, the times will change and the, the movements will rise and they will fall and the, and the talking heads will rotate. And, you know, this, there are truths that will remain the same that will still be a struggle. And, and the, that's the territory that I feel most comfortable in. I've never really had a religious experience in a religious place. closest I've ever come to seeing and feeling God is listening to rap music. Rap music is my religion. Amen. What I say might save a life. What I speak might save the street. I ain't got no instruments, but I got my hands and feet. 
Hands on clap and feet on tap. LB beats to make that slap. And I ride them with my raps. And they all tight as my nap. You made this very intense record, and at the same time, you made the Kill 'em Reich record. Producer on that record. It's basically another very much a very small operation. Not a whole lot of guests in there. It was just two guys making a, a classic hip hop record. And I know the way you can immerse yourself in an album. How were you able to sort of pull yourself out of cancer for cure mindset and do this other completely different record? It was almost by force, to be honest. Mm. Mike just wasn't having no for an answer. Um, I said no several times. And I was, uh, you know, I thought I was going to just do a couple of songs on the record and just continue to do my record. But uh, I just liked Mike so much. And we just and the music that we were coming up with was really exciting to me. And it was just like, after about 100, why don't you just produce the whole albums? Um, <laughs> I, just, I just acquiesced. And I was like, all right, man, like, of course, let's do it. So it, it actually turned out for the best, of course. I mean, you know, and also doing that record in, in sort of, and taking a break from my record and then coming right back into my record gave me a little bit of a new energy um, that I needed probably to finish that record. How about another tune, Jamie? I will give you that tune. What are you going to play? <laughs> I don't know. Actually, I really don't know. Oh, we're going to play a song called Stay Down. Dressed to the nines like a target, dressed like a bullseye from a blind archer. On a piranha, swimming with a blood chum water. Lark in the darkness, watch it. I got, got this. this boom box burner boy. Burn like a LA sunset, colorful, toxic, snuff snuff, deadly and erotic. Walk like a man, not a product. Run like a strumpet, talk to the hands side puppet. Look at them sky right. Be hard, nothing. We don't have a tear for your bucket. Lights but a pageant, then in the deep. Try to pull the curtain back, crack go police with. Here comes Dave, Dress your little boys and display them. Cutting through my brain like a ray gun. Telling you these are shameless. Obama the Reagan. Look at how they bent to the training. Why would I be angered? Now when I can come a gully hang glad angle. Face that mango anguish. Notice I'm about odd language. Full of joy. Get a fry guy till he vanquish. Bonus point. Bonus Task from a white noise planet with it is fast straight from command and throw haymaker plus landing. Never take a win for granted. Remember that pitch that I sang with two annoying masses. Before mass graves hatch like magic. Everybody bow to the bastards. Anthem ass the dispatches get ranted. Back in the matter of craft the track happens. Living in my boss is hard and I crack kid. What's that passing? Wanna watch some smoke till I'm back? Oh, like a chop. Yo!
LP in the band on Sound Opinions. We'd like to thank LP and his band for being our guest today on Sound Opinions. Thanks so much, guys, for coming in. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it was great. see video of our session with LP at soundopinions.org and don't forget to share your thoughts about this show or anything that's on your mind. Leave us a comment at 888-859-1800. Up next, Greg and I review the new album from living legend Bob Dylan. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. That Duquesne whistle blowing Blowing locks gonna sweep my world away I'm gonna stop in Carbondale And keep on going That Duquesne train gonna ride me night and day Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that croaking, of course, can belong to no other artist than Bob Dylan. It's a track called Duquesne Whistle that opens up his 35th studio album, Tempest. Greg, do we even have to introduce Bob Zimmerman? (laughs) I I don't think so. 71 years old. It is the 50th anniversary of his first recording in a studio in 1962. The man is an American treasure, a living legend, and I always like to remind people, 
a really funny guy who always is challenging expectations. This is his first studio album since the fairly unpalatable Christmas in the Heart in 2009. He's got a band together that's a really great one. Some familiar names that have been with him for a long time. Tony Garnier on bass leading the group. Charlie Sexton is back on guitar. And Stu Kimball. He's got David Hidalgo of Los Lobos putting the icing on the cake with fiddle and accordion. It's always news when there's a new Dylan album. Let's hear a track. We'll come back. We'll give our opinions. This is Bob Dylan with Pay in Blood from Tempest on Sound Opinions. Well, I'm grinding my life out Steady and sure Nothing more wretched Than what I must endure I'm drenched in the light That shines from the sun I could stone you to death For the wrongs that you've done Sooner or later, you'll make a mistake I put you in a chain that you never would break Legs and arms and body and bone I pay in blood, but not my own Bob Dylan with a track called Pay in Blood from his latest album, Tempest. Jim, I often like to think about what somebody who's never heard Bob Dylan before would think the first time they hear that voice on this record, you know? The voice has never been worse. I mean, it's in ruins in a lot of ways. It is not a conventional voice. It never has been a conventional voice. And on this record, it it just sounds like, you know, he's gargling with motor oil or something and there's dirt and gravel in there. And yet, when you pay attention to what's going on here, it's something really remarkable. First of all, I wasn't quite sure Dylan was going to have another great album in him. But, you know, since the early 2000s, when he started to produce himself, he's been on a real roll in terms of producing these kind of records. He basically takes his band and says, I'm going to pretend like we're in a juke joint down by the Mississippi, and we're going to play the music that we enjoy. Folk, country, blues, early rock and roll. It sounds like it could have been cut on a 78 RPM record from like 1945 or something like that. The voice is what's carrying this. The background of the instrumentation is basically just that background. It's all about that voice, you know, the meager melodies that it's carrying. And yet he packs so much information in, so much humor, so much blood, so much storytelling that it's riveting. You know, I compared him and this record in my Tribune review to Tommy Lee Jones in that movie, No Country for Old Men, that Coen Brothers movie. (laughs) You know, he just turns to the camera and just says, you know, at some point God abandoned me. And I really don't blame him. Now, Dylan may or may not be aware of that Coen Brothers movie, but he sure is aware of that tradition of the murder ballad. And he's very comfortable there. He's bringing that 
forward with that sense of humor. Like the lines jump around from these really dire, dark modes to really outrageously funny stuff. So Dylan, again, at the top of his game as a lyricist and a storyteller, I'm going to give the latest Dylan a buy it. Yeah, I agree, Greg. This is definitely a buy it record. You know, he's been thinking about his legacy for a very long time, and there are a million lines on this record where he's wondering about what's going to happen to him. Is he near the end of his time? The Tempest was, of course, William Shakespeare's last play. Is Dylan nodding to Tempest? Hmm. In a very funny interview with Rolling Stone, he says, No, my album is Tempest. It's not The Tempest. (laughs) Two completely different titles, right? (laughs) The guy is funny. You have to take him as funny. When he does a 14-minute track about the disaster of the Titanic, Hmm. and then all of a sudden, Leo DiCaprio pops up (laughs) in the middle of it, right? People are saying, What is that about? I don't understand. Hey, remember, in the past, he's written about... uh, odd pop culture figures like Reuben Hurricane Carter Mm -hmm. or Joey Gallo, the mobster. And they're not really about those figures. It's about the process of mythologizing. I disagree with you about the voice being the the only thing. I think he's giving the band more room on this record than he has in recent years. My big complaint about Dylan in the new century has been arthritis prevents him from playing guitar. So he hasn't been able to lead the band on guitar as he did so effectively through much of the 90s. This time, I think he's finally got the groove right. This is a really fun Bob Dylan record, (laughs) believe it or not. Is it going to be one of the ten I would reach for for the desert island? No, but I'm really glad to have this from him, so a double buy it it is. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have a live taping of Sound Opinions with the Japan Droids. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Thanks to Mary Gaffney and Andrew Gill. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana. Our assistant producers are Annie Minoff and Michael DeBonis. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. Christmas in the Heart actually is his favorite Dylan record. Come on, Anna. Answer your phone. Answer your phone. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Greg and Jim, this is Tom from Lombard, Illinois, calling about your buried treasures show. Right now, my favorite artist, everybody's tired of me trying to play them. This guy is an artist called The Tallest Man on Earth. He is a Swedish folk singer. He's unapologetically influenced by Bob Dylan. He is an incredible guitar player. His latest album is called There's No Leaving Now. I cannot get it out of my CD player in my car. I'm listening to it constantly. They say it is in line with the agent. Sometimes noise is just your mind. But the lesson is vague in the lightning. Shows a deer with her mind on the moor. And how something with the sun is just a friend. Since they shook the earth in 1904. I have never heard him on the radio. And he is the most amazing artist out there right now. So I think people need to discover this guy. Thanks. Hello, my name is Samantha. I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I was calling in to um, 
mentioned the band Summer Camp that I'm really enjoying. I think that they don't receive enough attention for how great they are, um, particularly the album Young. And I like this song a lot, Veronica Sawyer. your opinions on sound opinions call our hotline 888-859-1800 we'll be back next week with more sound opinions produced by wbez chicago and distributed by prx